this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky accidentally dipped herself in gold earlier this week, so she's off trying to get that cleaned off. But don't worry, guys. She left a little patch in the small of her back, clear of gold, because she's read the gold dipping safety manuals. She'll be fine. (laughs) On the first half of this episode, we discussed Guy Hamilton's 1964 film Goldfinger, the third James Bond movie, which has Bond, James Bond, chasing down an international gold smuggler, serial murderer, and gin rummy cheater who plans to bomb Fort Knox in order to narrow the world market on gold. That might not initially sound like it has much in common with Incredibles 2, a movie about a superhero family that suffers some growing pains when the mom of the family gets to go on some cool secret missions and the rest of the family isn't invited. But superhero movies and spy movies are thematically pretty closely related. Both tend to be about extraordinary individuals with special powers, special talents, and special access that most people lack. Both trade in the romance of secret knowledge and secret identities. And both tend to pitch the protagonists at colorful, outsized villains who are out to target the innocent rubes who won't see the threat coming until it's too late. Superhero and spy movies have both seen a major resurgence in America over the last decade and a half, and it's no wonder. In an uncertain world full of unpredictable threats that feel out of our hands most of the time, there's a lot of power in the fantasy of not just knowing what's going on behind the scenes, but having the power and the mandate to fight back, no matter what the cost. Brad Bird's 2004 Pixar feature The Incredibles flips some of that script by setting the action in a world where heroes have been outlawed, with the understanding that they cause more problems than they solve. Super strong Bob Parr and his super stretchy wife Helen used to be big famous heroes, but since the hero ban, they've settled down and raised a family. Their teenage daughter Violet can turn invisible or generate force fields, their young son Dash has super speed and attitude problem, and baby Jack-Jack, eh, we'll get to him. In the first film, Bob has a midlife crisis and embraces the chance to secretly get back into heroics, which first endangers his family, then brings them closer together. The second film starts right where the first one left off, but it quickly splinters the family again. This time, Helen's the one with the invitation to go do super work, and Bob is the one at home with the kids, which he does not adapt to well. 
It feels like there's a world of difference between the Parr family and James Bond, who beds nearly every beautiful woman he sees and doesn't need to worry about attachments crimping his lifestyle since his paramours mostly die minutes after he's done with them. But The Incredibles and Incredibles 2 are heavily inflected with spy story tropes, especially the elaborate infiltration schemes and action sequences, the fancy high tech that gets the heroes into and out of trouble, and the ineffectual death traps that villains just can't resist. Bird has cited Bond as a specific inspiration for The Incredibles movie alongside shows like Mission Impossible and Man from U.N.C.L.E. And as continuing chapters in a franchise, Goldfinger and Incredibles 2 both have the usual duties of sequels, to expand the stories and the action, while effectively giving fans the same thing they enjoyed from the last time. That's a little easier with a franchise like the James Bond movies, where the protagonist's unflappability and unchanging nature is part of the appeal, than it is with The Incredibles, where the first movie takes the characters through some major developments, and then the second film has to kind of roll that back for dramatic purposes. In a minute, we'll look at how it does that and talk about whether it's an effective choice. Then we'll bring in Bond, who rolls back his character development in practically every movie, and we'll see what the two have to say to each other. So, Incredibles 2, how did you guys feel about it? I liked it a lot. It's not The Incredibles. I think that's sort of the thrill of the new isn't there. I'm not sure. I, there's you know, thematically, there's a lot going on in this film, and we'll get to it. But I'm not sure it's quite as rich as the first one either. But I mean, I love these characters. I love the the action scenes, the design of it. Um, you know, there's not a lot to complain about. I like it quite a bit. Yeah, it plays it safe in the way that a lot of 
Pixar sequels do, but I think it's better equipped to do that than some of the sequels we've seen. I mean, the worst, many of the worst Pixar films are sequels. You think of the Cars sequels, you think of uh, Finding Dory for me, which I thought was very disappointing, uh, Monsters University. Uh, the Incredibles is so well suited to be a continuing adventure, and to, you, know, you can send all these characters off to fight a new supervillain and have that be. Uh, more satisfying than some of those other films which feel so much like kind of a repeat of an old formula or not, it doesn't feel like a, they don't feel like stories that are as comfortably extended you know the toy story movies of course being the huge exception to that yeah when you when you said pixar lazy and sequels i no, <laughs> immediately no, thought ex- of toy story i was yeah. going to come over the table no no, 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 no. I, those are definitely the exception but those are the ones where each movie has a very strong and new theme to build around and, and to justify them a little bit more than than these other Pixar sequels, which feel just too blatantly like cash-ins. I mean, Incredibles is maybe poised a little bit in between those two things. I mean, I think you would want, given how good the first Incredibles movie is, I think you wanted something great out of this movie, and this isn't this isn't great. But it's a good time. I, I had a really good time uh, at, at this movie, and it kind of hit all those kind of familiar buttons quite well. Yeah, it, I mean, it just, it once again reminds me of the Pixar problem, which is that Pixar's best films are so incredibly good, uh, to use a word, mm-hmm. that the bar for them is set so much higher than for anybody else. And I think if this wasn't a sequel, if any other studio put out this movie, I would have been you know, very impressed with the sophisticated, fun characters and the stylish design and the incredible action sequences. But following as it is so many just really effective Pixar movies and The Incredibles might well be on my top 10 films of all time. I know You're that I, I am a super fan of The Incredibles. Mm-hmm. I just, for me, what it is, is not only do I like, I love this particular uh, genre and I love the way this movie plays with the genre. I love the milieu and the style. But I think above everything else, what impresses me so much about The Incredibles is that it's doing so many different things simultaneously. But all of those things are aimed in the exact same direction. Like it's just it feels like a very tight movie, even though you've got five different characters all experiencing like pretty significant developed arcs. For me, the problem with Incredibles 2 was I don't know what that what that theme or central idea is. I feel like many of the characters, including the emergent villain and including some sort of kind of other side things that I guess we're going to get into in a little bit and all of the heroes from the first time and a whole bevy of new characters that are introduced. Like all of them seem to have their own arcs, but there's no central focus. There's no central direction that I can see. One thing I would say that Incredibles 2 might be about is how families reconstitute themselves, how roles can shift within families and cause disruption, but strong families kind of find a way to fill roles that they weren't playing before. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's kind of the challenge of the of this movie is that you have this child, this uh, Jack-Jack, who plays a much bigger role in this movie who's new and has all of these powers and which looks like a, like a baby has no control over anything that he's doing. And so you have to kind of manage that situation. And then of course you have a reversal in terms of what the roles of a husband and wife are and what, you know, and then this one, of course, Elastigirl gets to go out and do this, do the saving and Mr. Incredible has to be Mr. Mom. And, and uh, I mean, that may be kind of a tired idea. I think you're, you're shaking your head already. I, I'm like Mr. Both Mom. shaking my head and rolling my eyes. But I, but I think it is both thematic resonance to it and also a lot of good comic business uh, uh, because the chaos of this family trying to make these 
adjustments on the fly, combined with this house that's full of misfiring gadgets, creates an atmosphere that's full of potential for good slapstick comedy. And I, I don't think it's as fully realized as, as I would like it to be, but uh, particularly the house, I think it like it introduces so much cool stuff that could happen in the house and it doesn't really follow through, but uh, it followed through enough for me to like the film. For me, some of what it's doing here just feels so... I'm going to say it. Dated. Keith, dated. Dated, dated, dated. Well, themes can be dated. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, You're okay with themes being well, dated? Well, I'm, I'm still working all that out. <laughs> the, but the whole, you know, oh, I'm the husband, but I have to stay home and deal with the kids. Like, Mr. Mom dealt with that in 83, and it kind of felt hoary back then. Like, I, I feel like Kramer versus Kramer was the good dealing with that. And then as soon as it started turning into comedy, like, oh, dad doesn't know how to do diapers. I mean, for what it's worth, though, it is set. I mean, it's easy to forget this, but it is set in the 60s, um, which is, it's you know. It's, yeah, with some of sort of some of the background of the 50s as well. Sure, sure. Like, I understand that. It's just, it's also like, it's a very sophisticated uh, period time that has has all sorts of gigantic super tech and superpowers yeah. and dealing with these really regressive themes would be fine if it did something more creative or colorful with them but instead it's like new math i liked old math oh, see, no that's new though that's new that, really that, that i'm gonna argue with you yeah completely. there's new math in the 60s common but core baby but there's now new new yeah, math, yeah. Which... like like my my 10 year old comes home with math and i don't know i yeah. have no earthly idea how to do help yeah. her with her math homework because but, of, but because i mean tom lehrer was making fun of this stuff in the 1950s like it just it feels so dated to me it's so, not, these are not you know, these are easy jokes, but yeah. they mostly land for me. And I don't think it's like the attitudes aren't regressive. It's not like men aren't meant to do this. It's, you know, he, he gets it together. I mean, it's more like men have to do this. You know, I think there's a little less to chew over. And I think the first film had like two very strong and intertwined themes about, you know, what is the responsibility of someone with powers, with gifts, and then basically you know, a very grown up theme of how do you keep your marriage together as people change as they get older. And that's, you know, that's a lot for a cartoon, uh, a mere cartoon that you ever, and I don't think there's quite as much as that going on here, but what is, there is, there is interesting. I think um, maybe I'm thinking of this film kind of in a personal way. I used to be the dude I drive to work at. Now I work out of home. I'm yeah. handling all of the home <laughs> tasks. I'm doing a lot of the, the cooking and the child management. You can't see this, but, but I'm, I'm going in for a high right. five oh, yeah, because that's, right. that's Keith, me too, Keith man. Is, Keith is doing that as well. So we're, we're, we're like, you know, we're both doing a little bit more. You know, so roles do shift. I don't think it's entirely a settled thing of who does what. I mean, I think that's a constant conversation that happens within family about who is in charge of what kind of task. And sometimes you have to take on tasks that are unfamiliar to you and, and get accustomed to them and, and become good at them. And I think you get that process that happens you know, over the course of the film where Mr. Incredible becomes a little bit more comfortable with the role that he initially finds overwhelming. I just, I think that is not necessarily a dated element, though, given when the time period in which the film sort of takes place, it would certainly be relevant then. Uh, but I think it's it's something that's, that's constantly relevant. That's a constant conversation that's, that's happening in any family about who does what and who plays what role. And But he's so childish about it. He's so unpleasant about it in a way that I just think 
kind of does a disservice to his character. Like in the first film, he also kind of had his, you know, big sulky Flintstone-y, like I, you know, me no like job. Like he was always kind of like a simple character with big emotions and like very straightforward desires to be out there doing exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. But here, you know, in the first film, all of that resentment is aimed at this horrible system that he's stuck in that makes him miserable. Here it's aimed at a character that we're that we love. And it's it's so petty. Like when he's grinding his teeth trying to be nice to her while deeply resenting and being jealous of the fact that she goes to get to do something that she loves and that she's good at. Like it just it really feels sour for me. And it doesn't really resolve. But he's in the wrong, though. I mean, it's sure. The, I mean, the film's not, you know, there's not a lot of ambiguity there that this is, you know, his problem to get used to. But it doesn't really resolve in any meaningful way until he gets to go play, too. Yeah. I mean, he, like, he, I think one of my problems with the film is that it's doing so many things at once that a lot of them don't really feel like they resolve. Yeah, like, I feel like the whole screen slaver thing is a little half baked. I, mean, I think some of the best superhero movies are ones where you where the villain has a point and makes a pretty good argument and i think there's and perhaps even the creator's sympathies lie a little bit with the point the villain's making and i think there's a little bit of that here as well yeah and i kind of made a point of this on twitter like I think everybody can to some degree relate to Syndrome in the first movie mm -hmm. because Syndrome became a villain because he loved something and he cared about it and it rejected him. And everybody's experienced some form of rejection in their lives. Everybody's experienced some form of caring about something more than it cares about them, whether it's somebody you have a crush on or, you know, the Star Wars franchise that goes and makes a movie you don't approve of. Like, everybody <laughs> well, I've has... got a solution for that. <laughs> told you, it's been all over Twitter today. <laughs> everybody has a, like, a disjunct with something that they care about. The screenslaver motivation to me is like, it, it kind of comes down to a, a kind of a very predictable, this very specific thing failed me in a way in my youth and like, therefore I'm mad. And it just doesn't feel like a relatable or interesting villain motivation to me. It almost seems like it's poised to be the kind of social commentary that, that took up the latter half of WALL-E, right? Which had to do with kind of a warning about what certain habits that we were getting into would lead to in terms of like would lead humanity to behave in a certain way, a certain addiction to addictions to technology and, and that sort of thing. It's just not nearly as well developed. That is one of the problems I do have with Incredibles, especially now that I have, you know, a, a week's distance from it is that I, I'm having trouble remembering a lot of what happens. And I think that maybe speaks to certain elements of the movie that are present, but not, fully fleshed out um it, you know and it could be for something as minor as this house should have been a bigger comic payoff than it was with all of its exits which are mentioned but nothing really comes of that and then something as big as screen slaver being kind of an interesting idea for a villain but not as resonant as it needed to be either yeah, for me, the whole movie kind of to some degree comes down to there is this constant thing like it, it's it's half a running gag and half a running drama throughout the film of like nobody wants to be responsible for Jack Jack. Nobody wants to be the one taking care of the baby and watching the baby when they could be doing exciting stuff. And so they're constantly passing him around between them. And then suddenly at the end of the movie, out of nowhere, Violet's like, Jack Jack will be safer with me. I will take care of him. And like that's the payoff to what feels like it's supposed to be a story arc, but 
there's not really a lot of tension or depth there. And then the resolution kind of comes out of nowhere. And I just feel like the movie's doing so many things that it kind of falls back on that kind of resolution for too many of them. Now, again, I really like these characters. I think that the style of the movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. I keep coming back to that word. Yeah. Um, I'd say it's remarkable. Sup- superlative. <laughs> superlative style. You guys, you guys are all better than I am. The, the action sequencers, I, I think, are just impeccable. impeccable. Like visually yeah. impeccable. Yeah. I think Brad Bird has just a real talent for staging both live action and animated sequences yeah, he, he for thinks, action. He, he seems to think in storyboards. You know, oh, just, you think about like these new superheroes that are kind of thrown in there and they, who have special abilities like being able to <laughs> tap into another dimension and then you combine the person who taps into another dimension with Violet who has her interesting powers and just like there's a wonderful syncopation between all of these different superpowers in these action sequences that you just don't get from the Marvel movies really they don't have that they're just not as satisfactorily staged and just, so this kind of gives you that feeling that you don't get or at least I don't get from a lot of the Avengers movies because they just aren't as crisply handled from a directorial standpoint. Yeah, it's just someone who knows how action scenes work and visual, and just how on-screen visuals work. I mean, I mean, Mission Impossible goes protocol. I think it's I think it's the best action film this century. It is just it is just incredibly well incredibly well mm-hmm. done, and and it's just you know you see him doing with live action what he does with animation, and you think this is just someone who has a way of seeing things that, that lesser directors don't. Yeah. He's just very good. I did a ranking of, of Brad Bird's films for Vulture recently, and it, it's tough because <laughs> he's, he's, he's got one dud, and even that's really um, rich in, in many ways. Tomorrowland? Yeah. You What's know. your number one? Um, it, my number one is Iron Giant. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you, just, you, know, you, you come out of the gate with an all-timer. I'm I'm too far across the table to uh, to high five you on that one. But, oh, uh, over the Incredibles, you'd have it over the Incredibles. Oh God! You talked about Incredibles being a top ten of all time movie, and in, in, in yeah, Iron Giant, Giant is, there, is your favorite so director ever. Good. Well, you know, Tomorrowland was a was a big Still. disappointment, but no, I mean, well, the Iron Giant is just well, both the Iron Giant and the Incredibles are just different from other movies in so many ways. And also, if he had said the Incredibles, I would have high fived him on that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's it's a hard call to make, and I'm glad I'm not the one who had to make it. But talking about that intersection of powers in the action sequences, for me, that is one of the most interesting things that doesn't get done very often in stories involving superpowers of any kind. And that's what really, more than anything, draws me to stories like the original animated Avatar The Last Airbender or the opening sequence in X-Men Days of Future Past. There's some excitement in characters with powers that, you know, use them to do cool things. But you can only have Iron Man like blast things with his hands so many times or the Hulk smash a wall so many times before it gets redundant. And you look at something like Justice League where all of the fights consist of I throw myself at the, the villain, the villain throws me through a wall, and then we all do it again, each of us in turn, over and over and over. Movies like The Incredibles and Incredibles 2 find ways to synergize the the powers so that they're different in every scene. And that is an excellent way to escalate the action over time. And Bradbird just really excels at the creativity of that. I mean, just, you know, going to the potential for Elastigirl's powers and then, and then putting her on a motorcycle. 
Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that one scene and, and just, well, what can we do with, with this combination of, of machinery and superpowers? It's, I, I love it. Yeah, the, the motorcycle that breaks in half mm-hmm. so she can be on different surfaces at, at the same time <laughs> is it's pretty, it's pretty sophisticated mm-hmm. thought. No, I, I want to kind of give this movie some time and see it again and try to get away from the impossible expectations set by the first movie. But I guess my feeling is just the first one is, to me, is a, it's a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. It is the rare perfect movie. And this one was not a perfect movie. And that's just sort of inevitable. But, you know, you know, it's incredible three uh, tomorrow. So I'll, I'll be excited about it. Oh, yeah. And I'll be there. And I mean, you know, this movie made a, a ton of money and like was an instant, instant uh, box office hit. And that. Like anything that gets Brad Bird the ability to make more movies and the movies he wants, I think is a great thing. Well, we'll be back after this break to talk about those connections between Goldfinger and Incredibles 2. Let me ask you something. What is the main reason you were all forced underground? Ignorance. Perception. Take today, for example, with the Underminer. Difficult situation. You were faced with a lot of hard decisions. Oh, tell me about it. I can't. Because I didn't see it. Neither did anyone else. So, when you fight bad guys like today, people don't see the fight or what led up to it. They see what politicians tell them to see. They see destruction, and they see you. So, if we want to change people's perceptions about superheroes, we need you to share your perceptions with the world. How do we do that? With cameras. We need you to share your perceptions with the world. How do we do that? We embed tiny cameras like those into your super suits. Wow, so small. And the picture is outstanding. Thanks. Designed to myself. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I kind of wanted to start with just the way both of these stories kind of draw from like familiar tropes and then do new things with them. I mean, spy stories didn't originate with Bond, but they kind of took them to a very specific and sophisticated place. Superhero movies didn't originate with The Incredibles, but the whole idea of like the superhero family where each one of them is working out something and that something has to do like with their powers. Like they have, each of them has a personality that is kind of tied into their powers and into Brad Bird's feeling of, you know, the father's role in a family, the mother's role in a family, how adolescent girls feel, how young kids feel. I just feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in both of these movies with kind of how they manage existing tropes and do new things with them. Yeah, I, I think they're both kind of digging into the possibilities of, I mean, you know, there, there had been spy stories before, but but not, you know, a spy with these many gadgets doing these kind of interesting things. And, and like The Incredibles is very, very much rooted in, in the Fantastic Four, which, you know, superhero team as family is the central metaphor of that but it, it wasn't conceived as that necessarily it kind of became that over the years and, and the incredibles kind of uh looks at the possibilities of that and makes it the the focus and and yeah i think there's a lot of of taking some existing material and re- refining it and and to into some um really compelling uh, movies with both of these 
And Goldfinger, though, introduces certain tropes that did not exist in sure. the previous ones. Like the cold open is something that before mm-hmm. the, yeah, having a big splashy sequence before the titles, that was a new thing. What were some of the other new things in, in Goldfinger that weren't? The gadgetry. The gadgetry is, is the big one. I think the really colorful supervillain, I think Oddjob is sort of the precursor of other Bond villains to come. You got me thinking, though, because we talked about how influential Goldfinger was on, on subsequent spy films. Do we see the Incredibles influence on subsequent superhero films? There, there aren't any more animated superhero films because, you know, who, who would dare to try, try to do another one? Oh, I guess there, there might be some, right, after this? The, nothing comes to mind. It's somewhat telling. But do you think the Incredibles has had an influence on other superhero films? Megamind certainly comes Megamind. to mind as uh, something that... It took a minute, though, right? It, it did take <laughs> a minute. Uh, I never um, saw all that one. Oh my gosh. I, I, think, I mean, Despicable Me is a super villain sure. story in some ways. And I mean, I think both of those films kind of draw specifically on the, the spy fi kind of thing mm-hmm. that you're talking about, sure. where, where, you know, there are technological gadgets and infiltrations, like infiltration is a big thing in the Despicable Me movies. I mean, I think there's certainly a feeling in both of those films that superhero tropes are big and broad, and it's fun to deconstruct them. Like, Despicable Me is expressly about making the villain into the hero and how that changes the story. Megamind is also about turning the villain into the hero, and then it goes a little further down the line into exploring kind of the nature of heroism and how it how it drags on people and how it harms people. Genevieve's brought up Big Hero 6, which is also like I I see a lot of the Incredibles in the visual style yeah, of that one specifically. Yeah, and the superhero team too. That that did not come to mind immediately, but I do love that movie. That's 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 an unfair omission on our part. As to whether it's affected live action heroes, it's really hard to say. Like I would I would be interested in digging into whether like Kevin Feig, for instance, was thinking about the Incredibles at all. You know, during the course of building the MCU, because the MCU is trying so heavily on decades upon decades and upon decades of comics but it's also got to get like it's a visual language and it's action and it's humor from somewhere what kind of st- was interesting to me about incredibles 2 and i think it's symbolized by the fact that, that it just picks up exactly where it left off it was like there's no effort or interest in engaging with the fact that there's just been an incredible boom of superhero movies in the space between 2004 and 2018 you know that they're ubiquitous they're everywhere um so how how do you then react to that you know and i don't think there's any sense of that brad bird is responding to that at all he kind of keeps his head to the ground don't you think or did you feel, did you feel like there were some elements of incredibles 2 that were attempting to pivot off of I would DC say maybe just movies or Marvel movies or anything like that. Proliferation of more heroes would be one way. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, it is kind of key. I think it kind of stays within the lines of, of, of the, the world created in the first film. If nothing else, it might be drawing a little on, and you could actually say this to some degree for the first one, but I think even more so for the second, there's been such a proliferation of digital apocalypse movies. You know, the man of steel was the one that really got people's attention and started, started them talking about it, but just the obliteration of entire cities in every science fiction movie uh, that involved the heroes or people with power. I mean, the star Trek movies as well, but uh, past a certain point, 
we just kept seeing cities being obliterated, you know, cities presumably full of people that the movies didn't care about at all. And both Incredibles movies are kind of looking at that tradition and saying, you know, heroes make huge messes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a sequence in Incredibles 2 where somebody is telling them, somebody, I can't recall if it's a government agent, if it's clear whether it's a government agent or like somebody from the police force, but is basically telling them, Look at all this devastation you called. If you just let the villain rob the bank, the bank was insured. Everything would have been fine. Like, how dare you fight this guy? You just made a mess. And like that feels like it's playing with the ongoing tropes of all of these movies have to have gigantic destruction. They have to keep escalating. Or are they still exciting? Well, it's also repetition, though, of the first one, right? Of just of having a point where society's deciding that it's uh, more of a hassle to have them around than than not, which is has gotten really old, right? That theme is really played out, but they kind of return to that well again, which kind of gets me thinking about if we're talking about tropes about you know, I mean, James Bond has all, all these established things that fans expect to appear in the movies at one point or another. There's this checklist of of prerequisite things that have to be there uh, is there such a thing for the incredibles i mean does the incredibles have to hit certain notes in order to be an incredibles movie or are we just simply seeing a sequel that is really playing it safe i mean i think both of those things are true and that may be a little of a little bit of my disappointment because incredibles the first incredibles is so good at giving these characters a starting point and an end point that is different. And each of them, like Violet comes into her own and figures out how not to be shy. And then in the the sequel, she's got to be shy again. Like mm. Dash gets to express himself by running around and he like stops being so like frustrated and angry all the time, except in the movie where he's kind of an obnoxious brat who's like angry all the time. Mr. Incredible has to go back to being in the closet and not getting to do what he wants and being frustrated and sulky. Elastigirl has to kind of figure out how to balance what she wants to do, like with her, her superheroing career and, uh, and being part of the family. And Jack-Jack is completely out of control. Like I felt like all five of those characters kind of took a step back from where they were at the end of the movie. And it disappointed me. It, and I guess maybe this is the lowest brow thing to like about the Incredibles too, but I liked all the Jack Jack stuff. I'll, oh I'll, dear. Yeah. It's really fun. I, I, and I think, I think that's kind of what babies are. It's a nice metaphor for how out of control kids can get. And your job is to try to harness them. And sometimes you're more successful than not, you know, because at least that was a character that wasn't played out in the first. I mean, we only got, his superpowers at the very end of the Incredibles. And so to see them all sort of laid out and working in, in unison, I mean, I thought that the, the best scene in the movie is him fighting that raccoon, right? I was going to say, it's also a very convincing grounded depiction of raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. they're sophisticated use of It was a huge week of, for of raccoons because you had that raccoon climbing that building. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, uh, well, maybe it was all. inspired yeah, by the film. It's viral marketing. Yeah. Trying to find a good way to a good place to fight Jack Jack. Yeah, I think we come to. I think this kind of brings up an interesting um, point comparing these films, though, is that, is that we go to Incredibles movies to see them, you know, work things out and, and change and evolve a little bit, and, and we do not go to James Bond for those for those <laughs> to see that at all. We kind of want to see variations on a theme over over you know and, and it, it's strange with that series because you know every time they hit the reset button and like you know Craig is a more grounded serious bond and then and then 
with, with Spectre especially and kind of, with, you know, Skyfall kind of breaks the pattern, but there's sort of a slipping into silliness and more gadgetry as, as the series progresses. Um, it's almost like something draws it in that direction. With The Incredibles, we don't have enough of a sample size to see if that would happen with, with those characters as well. Uh, but that's okay. I think it's, I don't necessarily, I, I'd like to get Incredibles 3 and I don't necessarily want to wait another 14 years uh, <laughs> for it, but I don't, I don't necessarily want one of these every two years either. No, not particularly. Not unless they, like, uh, it, kind of as we're recording this, we're getting the news that Solo, a Star Wars story, did poorly enough that Disney wants to dial way back on the plans to to break a whole bunch of characters out into their own films. I feel like if there were going to be more Incredibles movies, maybe focus more on, like, one of the characters and tell a different kind of story. Because you know, instead of instead of focusing so much on the crowd and giving everybody a story, I'd like to just see Violet or Dash or you know somebody have an adventure of their own. We, we st- sort of get that with Helen, who's taken away uh, and and you know kind of given a chance to discover who she is apart from her family, which is you know that that is a that's something that that being a part of family is something that you do have to deal with. It's like you know, do I still have an identity away from, <laughs> away from from my, my family? And that's it's, it, it's one of many things in this film that, that I think if they developed it just a little bit more, uh, it would have been a richer film, though it is good as it is. And I wonder also if you know moving production up a year <laughs> might, have, might have resulted in some of those uh, shortcuts that, that we don't normally see with well, uh, Brad so Bird. moved up a year. It's supposed to come out next year. Oh, okay. And they just they rushed it yeah. through production. Yeah. On the other hand, he's used to working with – I mean, Iron Giant was rushed through – Ratatouille was was him taking over a trouble production and and wow. you know, speeding it through. So I don't know. Maybe he, said, maybe he works better under. I pressure. mean, given given Pixar's like legendary tendency to workshop stories like ad infinitum until they're absolutely positive that they've got them where they need to be. And given the fact, like we, we had an interview or with, not, I saw the good dinosaur. <laughs> well, you know, that's an example of a movie that they said themselves. They never really cracked, but they had to get something on screen that year. So they did. And that was that movie also had a very troubled production. But in this case, we had an interview with Bird at the Verge that my colleague Brian Bishop conducted. And one of the things he said in that interview was that the villain came to the story very late in the storytelling process and that he was constantly retooling the story and adding in elements and taking out elements and changing motivations, like basically up until the point where he couldn't anymore. And that really makes me wonder if that had another year, if we would have seen a very different story. Mm from the way he talks about the retooling process and the reconsideration process, I have no idea whether it would have fixed the problems, whether it would have been better or worse. I do think it would have been a very different film. So we kind of got into to the casual destruction of property and such, but uh, we should talk about loss of life and how that plays. You know, James Bond has a license to kill. Uh, the Incredibles are, well, I'd say, pretty adverse to killing, but they they are. This is not a film in which fatalities are out of the question either. So you know, maybe you know how how they how you know, it might be worth discussing how each handles the idea of, of of death and 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 the responsibility of the heroes to others around them. I mean, do you remember deaths in Incredibles too? Like the deaths in the first Incredibles were. A little shocking. Yeah. You know, the, the Incredibles, the first one is a more intense movie than this. I think the action scenes in this are more frenetic and intricately choreographed. But the first one, the deaths are really, they really have an impact. Uh, what are you thinking of? I'm um, thinking of like the sequence with Dash running around where the, like shortly after 
uh, Helen like lets them know like these people will kill you. They do not care that you're children. And then they're running through the jungle being chased by the minions in like those weird hover circle things. Mm. And he runs around and they repeatedly crash into each other or into other things and explode. And it is very clear that those pilots die. And, you know, it's... There's no G.I. Joe, like, parachute off in the background somewhere. It's a gag, but but the don't wear capes stuff and it is, is still you know it, it kind of gracefully establishes uh, the lethality of, of of this world and there's just the fact that syndrome has definitely killed dozens of heroes yeah one of whom like you see his his rotted corpse yeah yeah so not, like I, not a nice guy syndrome <laughs> i don't i don't honestly remember deaths in incredibles 2 although again so crowded so much going on i'd have to go back and watch <laughs> i think it. it's more of a possibility of it but but sort of damage on a mass scale is is deaths are implied but i you know i think you continually get the sense that this is something that they're going to try to prevent and that they're not going to use lethal force. It's not really part of their repertoire, whereas as Bond will eliminate who as many people as he needs to, to for the greater good. I think what's interesting for me about Bond and his license to kill is that like every hero today has a license to kill. It's it's almost like something that comes out of video game mentality is there's the expectation that you're going to have a series of escalating fights with a ton of minions. You're going to have to mow down those minions and then eventually you're going to get to the boss and the boss almost certainly has to die unless you're planning on bringing them back for sequels. But the fact that he expressly has a license to kill just felt like, I don't know, when I first became aware of James Bond, that seemed like a fascinating thing is like, you know, when Liam Neeson uh, in Taken starts just like, like blowing up any black site that he can find full of people who he feels are between him and his daughter, that is a vigilante, like taking action uh, that's expressly against the law. But you know, he's in a lawless world, and he's a lawless man. So what does he care? James Bond has had an entire government say to him, go ahead and kill whoever you need to, like, we'll have your back on it. And that just feels different to me in an interesting way. There's so many spy and or superhero-ish stories that kind of have the, and if you're caught, we'll disavow everything. Like the license to kill expressly says, you can go ahead and do this and we're cool with it. Yeah, but the, you never feel the weight of it, though. I, I, and with James Bond, I think, that, I think maybe that was the one of those distinguishing qualities of Automatically Secret Service is that you did, and it mm-hmm. seemed to make people extremely uncomfortable that you could, right? That, yeah, that, there's, that, a, there's a big sequence in Casino Royale where he flashing back to his first kill and the weight of, of, of that moment. But uh, yeah, in general, it's it's Bond dispensing with who he needs to dispense with. Yeah, you don't you don't feel it, and really, and I don't really I don't remember any deaths uh, in Incredibles two, which doesn't mean they're not there. But I think that's like more proof that they didn't have much weight and that's not something that's really reflected upon in any serious way in either movies i mean we, we even have in this topic listing casual murders you know the casual impl- implies that it, it's something that can happen without any real need for reflection at all uh, which i think is true both of the movies and yet bond is often exquisitely attired while committing these murders <laughs> <laughs> yep I'd like to talk a little about the visual style of these films. I mean, the Incredibles movies, one of the things that makes them is just the degree to which, like, the first Incredibles was Pixar's first all-human cast. 
Uh, and they spent a lot of time worrying about the uncanny valley and, and how to make people. Obviously, that's not a question that a live action movie has to deal with. But both of them have just kind of conscious looks. We haven't really talked about Goldfinger director Guy Hamilton at all. I'm curious if you guys have any sense of the rest of his career or any thoughts about his visual style. You know, I was just looking that up and he did, you know, he did a bunch of Bond movies, did four total. And then beyond that, he's probably best known for things like Force 10 from Navarone. You know, yeah, I saw I saw a couple of Agatha Christie adaptations. Yeah. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. <laughs> yes, um, I like. I wish the adventures would continue on that, but it seems like the chances of that happening. He are did a direct um, Funeral in Berlin, which is a sequel to the Ipris File, which I'm going to tip my hand. You might be hearing about more later in this episode. Oh. Um, I mean, it's not a, not like a bad director, but I think a lot of the look is owed to Ken Adam, who is the production designer, yeah. uh, who is amazing. Um, he worked on the Bond series for a long time. He did the production design for Dr. Strangelove, uh, which, you know, some, some striking sets in that. I think, I think in terms of someone who like can work on really big sets and, and make them feel like, you know, hyper, you know, exaggerated versions of places you might actually encounter in real life. I mean, there's, there was no, there's no one better. And I, and I think it's often, you know, the saving grace of some, some bad uh, Bond films like Moonraker is not a good movie, but the places, all oh, the places he goes in that movie are, are really uh, wonderful I think to, that's to visit. Key. I think that's key in terms of, because uh, you're talking about Guy Hamilton. I, I, I saw The Mirror Cracked recently, mm-hmm. 1980. It is visually undistinguished, to put it mildly. <laughs> I saw it as part of as some Lansbury films I was looking at for uh, The Times, and it's not on Goldfinger's level in terms of... Uh, scale of production or flash of production that's pretty blah so i think i think it's uh probably proper to give uh, to spread the credit out for how uh, goldfinger looks and just yeah just the idea of doing a little bit of globe trotting and giving you a lot of different locations and sets and that sort of thing and i i, I love the sets and, and incredible yeah too. and i think a lot of that comes from ken adam as well you don't get one without the other yeah I mean, that would probably be a big reason why The Incredibles is set where it is, when it is, to be, mm-hmm. to be able to play around with that kind of iconography. I think uh, just a fun thing to do is to, with Goldfinger, is to dig a little into the backstory of how they put together Fort Knox, because obviously they were not allowed to visit Fort Knox, <laughs> to film in Fort Knox, to be given any kind of idea of what the inside of Fort Knox was looked like. Apparently they got special permission for like a 3000 foot flyover so they could get sort of a sense of the layout. Wow. And like the, the producers talk about how that actually gave them a lot of freedom to make up something fun for the interior of what that should look like. Mm-hmm. But there, there are a bunch of just fun, interesting production stories about what it was like figuring out how they wanted to design that since they didn't have any any source or reference material. It looks reasonably robbable, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I also just kind of want to call out, like, as as silly as the idea is of we decided to murder this woman by painting her all over with gold, it's a really memorable image. Like, it's it's a really striking visual image. What do they call it? It's like suffocation. Skin skin suffocation. 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 Um, You can't die that way. It's hot nonsense. (laughs) It's it's complete Uh, hot nonsense. Yes, exactly. But... It looks really cool. Well, the fumes, maybe the fumes, the fumes but, that's, but that's not how she dies. You know, the, the whole like small spot on the on the. On the Wait, are you saying he loves only fumes? <laughs> what's what's going on here, Scott? Uh, yeah. Well, gold. What else do you guys want to talk about? You want to talk about the the wish fulfillment fantasy of being the suavest thing in the room? 
I mean, Bob Parr very clearly wants to be James Bond. Mm -hmm. Like, he drops into that, like, hello there kind of voice and and physical style a lot during The Incredibles when he thinks that he's being real Flash. And he doesn't get to do it as much here. But, like, there's there's very clearly a very specific image that he's going for that he associates with the super spy, I would argue, because of Bond. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's sort of, you know, what makes Bond work is and, and transportable across Across eras, is there's there's things that are that are very you know fun escapist. I have I have no you know connections with the world other than, other than to be a man of action and intrigue and 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 eat the finest food and and drink the finest martinis and go to bed with lots of women. I mean that's going to have appeal across uh, uh, you know not not for everyone but for for a certain slice of the of the population they're they're going to see that as an escapist fantasy. He can't do it. He can't do any of that. I mean, he's, he's kind of in both films. Uh, Mister Incredible is in the throes of midlife crisis. He's not as uh, as sharp or as, as trim, I guess, as he might have been in his peak. And uh, and uh, that frustration comes to the surface of both movies. I think it's interesting that in Incredibles two, we sort of get a little of what Helen's version of that looks like, because Helen's version of it is you know, going in the into the meeting with the rich siblings who want to, to bankroll them and being sort of careful and cautious and self-controlled and not giving too much away. But she's not necessarily putting on the personality. Like, it, it feels a lot more like who she actually is than kind of a, a wish fulfillment thing about who she wants to be. I get a lot more sense of her being authentic to herself when she's being a hero Whereas I feel more like like Bob is playing a role that he has in his mind. That's a really fun role that he loves for really good reasons, but that's still a little bit of a role for him. We talked about escapist fantasies and so on and so forth. Which of these series are more grown up? I wouldn't say The Incredibles is. I think it, it's actually, you know, it's, they're, they're quote unquote kids movies, but I think there's a lot more sophisticated adult themes in that than in, than in any Bond movie. Even I, the grim and gritty ones. I guess define grown up. Because, I mean, the Bond movies are about a fantasy of being grown up, mm-hmm. but The Incredibles... Are about being grown up <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, but they're also... Or growing up. Yeah, but they're, I mean, they're also, there's a lot of uh, little kid action. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of little kid-esque humor. There's a lot of slapstick that, like, even with all the humor you get in Goldfinger, it, it certainly doesn't feel nearly as slapstick as Jack-Jack fighting that raccoon does. He's got a seagull on his head. <laughs> you do have a point about the headbird. Uh, yeah, headbird. Yeah. Any any movie with that is, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not going to be all that serious. I mean, I think it's more. If you're talking about the filmmakers, I think it's more grown up to explore all of these problems. But James Bond still feels more like a grown up than most of the characters, even if he is kind of a performative fantasy grown up. I tipped my hand. I think I think you all know how I feel. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, think, yeah, I think I might be on Keith Keith's side here. I mean, James Bond has never struck me as very adult, which is part of the fun of it, and it's in its way. Spoken like a man who doesn't know the precise temperature Celsius at which champagne must be served. <laughs> well, well, in that sense, I 
right. I that I I concede to Mr. Bond's sophistication on that and other matters of a gentlemanly nature. All right. Well, we're going to go check the temperature on our champagne and see if it's ready to drink yet. In the meantime, uh, Goldfinger surprised us a little bit by not being widely available for streaming rental, although many of the usual services have it for online purchase. Uh, You can always wait five minutes. The streaming rights to the Bond movies tend to switch around a bit, and they might turn up again at any moment. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. Incredibles 2 is currently playing in theaters, and it might be a good idea to catch it there, because with Disney working on its own online streaming service, there's no immediate guarantee of its films turning up on your normal streaming services after the theatrical window. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I wanted to recommend something local to us, but episode appropriate. From now until January 6th at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, there's an exhibit called The Science Behind Pixar uh, that's worth checking out. Uh, I went there this week with my daughters, age uh, 7 and age 10, and we spent a full hour playing around, which for kids of that age is, is a long time to do any one task. It takes up two full galleries at MSI. The exhibit offers a, a sort of a thumbnail sketch into the art and math and engineering that goes into making a movie for Pixar and kind of the step-by-step process behind the scenes about how, th- how something goes from a sketch into what you actually see at the movies. Uh, and in true MSI fashion, every single aspect is interactive. You can play around with camera perspective and lighting schemes and set decoration and rendering. Uh, the girls and I spent a lot of time making little six-frame stop-motion movies with the, with the Pixar lamp. That was kind of fun. Um, I'm, I'm told that this exhibit pales in comparison to the tour of the actual Pixar headquarters. Uh, but if you live in Chicago or, or plan to visit, and especially if you have kids, it's a lot of fun. It's very accessible. Uh, my one piece of advice is, is to try try to show up early or during off hours. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, you you have to buy a separate ticket for the exhibit, and so they do control how many people they let in at, at any time. But because you know, once you're let in, you're you can stay for as long as you want, and and uh, you really want to get yourself in a situation where you can kind of play around a little bit without having to take turns with other kids or adults. Stupid uh, other kids. Stupid other kids. It's like, come on, you really want want to want, want to do what I'm doing right now? But um, but it's fun. I mean, it's it's uh, it's kind of a good. Just again, it's a very simple, accessible, uh, and enjoyable way of uh, getting a look at the Pixar uh, way of doing things. It's called The Science Behind Pixar. It's at MSI through January 6th. And the, the exhibit has traveled around a bit. It's, it's also at the Couve, Vancouver, uh, currently. And, um, and so it's been in other cities. You can go to the Pixar website, and, and they'll give you some more information about where you can see the science behind Pixar if you don't live in Chicago. But uh, if you do, uh, check it out. It's pretty good. Tasha? I want to recommend a book that, as of uh, our recording, just came out. It's called Room to Dream, and it's a memoir from David Lynch and journalist Christine McKenna. Now, usually when you say uh, it's a memoir from famous person and less famous journalist, what you mean is famous person talked to less famous journalist and less famous journalist wrote the book. In this case, the two of them alternate chapters throughout the book. 
uh, McKenna talked to everybody she could get to who had ever was related to Lynch, people that grew up with him, uh, the many, many women he's had relationships with, everybody she could find who had ever collaborated with him or worked with him on a set. So a ton of actors and producers and writers uh, and just other people in various you know crew members and other people in the industry. Um, and so she lays out her chapters as a fairly standard biography kind of thing a here's where he went here's what he who he worked with here's what they had to say about it and then lynch read those chapters and gave his impressions of the same time period which he does mostly through anecdotes david lynch like i've come to a place of just really struggling with david lynch's work and i went into this book which i reviewed for npr books mostly wondering if it would provide any kind of insight into his work like any kind of rosetta stone or key to understanding who he is or where he comes from and the stories that he tells are in no way meant to help you like pick apart the details of his work or, or understand what he's doing. I mean, he he tells a lot of stories that are like, I was hanging out in the diner with so-and-so and they told me a story about such and such. Like one of my favorite stories in the book is basically just during a period of his life where he had virtually no money, he would go hang out in this diner all the time. And one time they had like an apple pie and he thought it was terrific, but too expensive. So he found he could buy an entire Dutch apple pie elsewhere for not much more than a slice pie price. So he bought a whole pie, <laughs> would go home and heat it up, put a slice of it like into to foil, carry it into the diner in his pocket and like sneak bites out of it. Um, the book is just full of like weird little stories like that. It treats his film and TV work as like kind of equal conceptually with his paintings or like he apparently is a big woodworker and he built like a lot of sheds and additions to people's houses and <laughs> workshops and back rooms. Uh, he's had many, many exhibitions of furniture that he's made. He was really into pottery for a while. Uh, he's got a whole series of, of like on photography that he does. And if you remember when his website came out and he was doing things like the Daily Weather Report, he's just always had a lot of, of little sidelines and interesting things going on. So there are stories, you know, there's, here's the history of why it took him two years to make Eraserhead and how, how he got the money in fits and spurts and what other people were doing at the time and how he put together that amazing soundtrack for it. But there are also just stories about like photo exhibits that he had or speeches that he gave. There's a lot, of course, about him and transcendental med- meditation. It is a weird collection of kind of fun, strange little anecdotes. To me, what becomes most interesting about it is like he never really explains who he is or what he's doing. But the more of these stories pile up over the time, the more you kind of give this image of him as somebody who works entirely on instinct, who has these very strong images in his head and will freak out on set if a door opens in the wrong direction uh, or if the color of something isn't exactly right because it doesn't match the dream he had or, or the vision that he had. And there are a lot of interesting little stories about him holding up an entire set of expensive actors and crew members and designers and lighters because he's putting a pile of coffee beans in the corner where nobody's going to see it in Lost Highway or futzing around with making his own lipstick color for Laura Dern in the Twin Peaks revival Mm. because 
he he's a very very hands-on director and there are all of these other things that emerge about his relationships with women uh which his kind of serial philandering is a big theme throughout the book um and so is his charisma and the way he just draws people into his world there is a lot to discover here about little details about the making of his movies and there's also just a lot to discover about who he is i think it's a really in some ways frustrating book if you're looking for deep meaning about david lynch if you're kind of looking to hang out with david lynch for like 20 30 years of his life room to dream it's a really interesting book that sounds great Keith, what's been good for you lately? I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness in advance because it's not something I've, I've seen lately, and it's not even a film that is easy to track down. So it's a useless recommendation, but it's an appropriate one because we were talking a little bit before about anti-Bonds and, and Bourne is sort of the answer to the Bond films. And there, and there was actually an answer to the Bond films that ran parallel to the Bond films, and that was the Harry Palmer series, which was produced by Harry Saltzman, who produced a lot of the early Bond films and has a lot of creative overlap with them. Ken Adam does the production design. John Barry does the music. Um, Guy Hamilton directed the second one, Funeral in Berlin. It's good. Uh, the one after that, Billion Dollar Brain, is also good, although my memory of it is so hazy. But the one I really like is is The Ipcris File, which is the first one. It stars Michael Caine as Harry Palmer, who is not James Bond. He's a very unglamorous spy and somewhat of a reluctant spy, um, you know, living in London, living not all that well in London. <laughs> There's a moment where he has um, a woman over for dinner, and the film follows him as, as he goes and buys all these canned foods to prepare. <laughs> uh, because, you know, this was, you know, swinging London was one thing, but, but so, you know, a lot of England was still recovering from World War II was not a time of, of great prosperity for years after that. And I think this guy, um, as played by Kane, uh, who is a, a magnetic actor and a very and has a certain uh, you know sexual charisma to him, but he's not Sean Connery handsome and never has been, is a, you know wonderful as sort of an anti-bond. So I would definitely recommend Ipcris Cloud if you can track it down. There there are two sequels originally, and there are two sequels in the 90s that I know nothing about. Um, I don't think I'm sure they were released in the U.S., but uh, uh, very much worth your time, the Ipcris file. Wow, I've never seen it. No, you should. I, I can pick out the DVD somewhere I can loan you, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic yeah, that's stuff. One of those titles that I've heard floating around forever, but uh, I've never thought to to watch it. And it's it sounds like fun. Like there are so many like slovenly. PI movies or slovenly detective yeah. movies, slovenly spy movies. I can't think of not a lot. Yeah, it's kind of a precursor to like sort of the sort of Elliot Gould and Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. although not not parodic like that. And it is an, a very effective, gritty espionage thriller. Uh, I should mention it's directed by Canadian Canadian director Sidney J. Fury, who is still active and deep into his 80s and, and was nominated for a Palme d'Or for this and would later go on to direct such films as Iron Eagle and Superman 4 and Ladybugs starring <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield. Oh <laughs> Ladybugs may be one of the worst movies of all time. It's an odd, it's an odd career. Well, that does actually sound like a lot of fun, Keith. And maybe it's uh, the thing I need to get the, the taste of Sean Connery out of my mouth, <laughs> which is a phrase that I don't say very often. I imagine it's you know, very heavy on tobacco and cologne. <laughs> but yes, but also champagne at exactly the right temperature. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episode will come out two weeks from now. Scott, what are we discussing? The horror film Hereditary arrived in theaters after six months of buildup and buzz following the film's premiere at Sundance in January 2018. 
It's one of those films that gets billed as the scariest, most shocking movie ever made, which is certainly hyperbole and not necessarily the best thing for anyone's enjoyment, especially over the course of months of rumors and publicity. But Hereditary is a genuinely unsettling movie. Ari Aster's debut as writer and director stars Tony Collette as an artist whose strange, dangerous mother has recently died. When Colette, her husband Gabriel Byrne, and their children move into the mother's house, they start experiencing weird phenomena that might point to a haunting, an incipient possession, or something worse. But Astor keeps changing which horror movie tropes he's pursuing, and Hereditary piles up the shocks as it builds up the tension. The inciting death, the theme of mourning and grief, the lurking dread, and the slow spread of supernatural phenomena in Hereditary all remind us a lot of Nicholas Rogue's 1973 thriller Don't Look Now, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie as a couple dealing with a terrible personal tragedy and the unexplained events around it. As someone who hasn't seen Hereditary, I'm told I'm not cleared for all the reasons these movies make a terrific pairing, but we'd encourage you to see both of them ahead of our upcoming episodes in two weeks. In the meantime, we would love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Goldfinger, Incredibles 2, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Oh, I'm all over the place. Um, you can read me at The Verge. You can read me. Uh, you can read me at Rolling Stone. You can read me at Vulture. I collect my clips at KeithPhipps.com, and I'm also there. You can reach me there if you. I'm available for writing and editing assignments, and eager to take some on. Oh, and on and I'm on Twitter at KPhipps3000. Scott, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR. Variety. I wrote about The Incredibles 2 for The Guardian. That was the first time I've written a film review for them, which was kind of cool. And uh, I'm in Vulture and other places as well. Uh, Tasha? Uh, you can find my work at TheVerge.com, where I am the film and TV editor. You can find my review of David Lynch's Room to Dream at NPRBooks.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And you can find our heroic protector, Genevieve Kosky, on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky and find her work at Vox.com. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Each thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Mr.